0: So, so this has been difficult. Uh, Those of you who are here uh, for the first time today or have not been here for a while, uh, let me uh, bring you up to speed. We have been uh, in a series on 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, Started that uh, at Easter, and uh, we'll finish it at the end of next summer, because that's how we roll. But today we finish up a, a seven-week kind of subseries on human sexuality, uh, and the reason for that uh, is twofold. Number one, it's in the text, and so whatever is in the text is what we're going to preach. But, but the other reason is that we are in a time when there has been a great deal of difficulty. There's been a great deal of division in the church uh, over issues having to do with human sexuality. And so what we have decided to do here is to try to understand as generously, as charitably as we can, the different ways that people who call upon the name of Christ have understood these passages historically and now. And it has been a challenge, I will say, uh, in part because this is just awkward stuff to talk about and um, I'm not trying to garner sympathy, but it's especially difficult for me when my daughters, my wife, my parents are here in church. Um, I'm very grateful that I've been sustained through this uh, by your prayers, by the loving support of my family, especially my wife Mary. Um, and, uh, and I'm also grateful that I was able to get some time away uh, this summer, in early August, to to prepare for the series. I was able to go off to a monastery for a study retreat uh, for a couple of days, I brought a whole big stack of books. What's funny about this? What what he said? Um, so I brought this big stack of books, and this is not this is not just to like show off the fact that I can read, um, uh, or to justify all the money we spent on them. Uh, th- there are are a lot of voices that are contributing to this conversation, many of which uh, have been publishing stuff just in, in the last few years. But I was also, I've also been sustained through this uh, thanks to a conference that I attended a couple of days, for a couple of days before I went to the monastery. Um, I went to a conference on the political and economic thought of C.S. Lewis, which is just like my idea of a good time anyway. Uh, but one of the great things about these conferences is you meet some of the most interesting people. And, and I met a colleague who wrote his doctoral dissertation on the poetry of C.S. Lewis. You may not know, you mostly probably know Lewis from his Narnia books or from his apologetic works, uh, perhaps from Screwtape Letters or Mere Christianity or all the wonderful essays he wrote. Uh, you may be aware of his work in literary criticism. Uh, but he also wrote poetry, not a whole lot of it and he's probably it's probably right that he's better known for his other work. Uh, but this uh, colleague told me about his, his uh, dissertation. He said one of his external readers was a man named Malcolm Gite. Malcolm Gite is a priest in the Church of England. He is a uh, university chaplain. He is a musician. He is a theologian, and he is a poet. And there's a poem that he wrote called... The singing bowl. That's the title on this book. Does anybody know what a singing bowl is? It's not like the sorting hat. What's that? That's not actually. That is a. Is it a glass harmonica? I think is the title. Of it? Uh, yeah, glass harmonica. But you have sort of a similar principle. One way. So a singing bowl is. It's, it's a metal bowl. And I, like, evidently, um, it's it comes out of um, uh, tradition. Uh, Eastern traditions where you. Meditate. So the idea is, you ring the bowl to begin a time of meditation, um, and uh, um, you can also, instead of just ringing it, uh, it, you can take the, the wooden mallet that you would use to 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 just hit it. You can sort of swirl it around, much like you would with with a, a wine glass and and wetting your fingers, and you sort of make it make it sing that way too. Um, Malcolm uh, Gaite writes this poem called The Singing Bowl," and it starts off, begin the song exactly where you are. Begin the song exactly where you are. If we're going to ask the question, where do we go from here, which is what we're talking about today in this sermon, then we need to get a handle on where here is. And this poem has been very helpful to me in helping to to not only to, to concentrate my thinking and to give me a framework, but also, quite frankly, in giving me some peace about what we're doing and why. Begin the song exactly where you are. In order for us to be present in this moment where God has us, there are some obstacles that have to be overcome. especially when we look at a contentious topic that has caused such heartache. It's very easy for us to be filled with feelings of regret. What are things that we could have done or said differently? What are things that, opportunities that we missed to move things in a more productive direction? Are there ways in which we should have spoken? Ways in which we should not have spoken? At the very first session of this series, I showed you this book, The Bond That Breaks, Will Homosexuality Split the Church? And this was written in 1978, and basically the answer has been yes. And so you can say, well, what, What did did I do wrong? What did we do wrong? Now that's if you're a particularly generous person. Most of us are not going to say, what did I do wrong? But they're going to say, what did some other people do wrong? So often the problem with beginning the song exactly where you are has less to do with regret than it does with disappointment or even anger. If only those people hadn't done that then we wouldn't be here today. And so, instead of being in the reality that we're in, we can think about a preferred alternate reality that could have transpired if the past had been different. End up living in an alternate universe that may be more congenial to us, but is not the one that we're in. We can also be tempted to anxiety, to fear about what could happen. And again, that is a living in a different reality from the one we're in. We're projecting into the future what could happen and getting all worked up over things that could develop that we think might be likely or even just possible but horrifying what all of this produces is the same thing that you get when you get your car stuck in the mud and then you spin the wheels. You just get deeper and deeper in the mud and more and more embarrassed because your children are in the backseat trying not to laugh at you. So, Geit says, begin the song exactly where you are Remain within the world of which you were made. Call nothing common in the earth or air. Accept it all and let it be for good. Now I confess that ordinarily, looking at a poem titled The Singing Bowl with a picture of this item used in Buddhist meditation, having somebody tell me to call nothing common in the earth or air and accept it all and let it be for good, that makes me kind of nervous. I'm less nervous knowing that Guyte is an orthodox and solid person, that he's not only a big fan of C.S. Lewis, but he thinks well like Lewis did. No, I think we need to be able to hear this admonition to accept To call nothing common in the earth or air, but to accept it all and let it be for good. To accept reality is not to approve of it. To accept that things are the way they are is not to say that they shouldn't or couldn't have been otherwise. It is to say that things are as they are, and we're going to deal with reality as it is. It's to affirm, when we say, when Geit says, call nothing common in the earth or air, it's not to deny the idea that there are things that are holy, that there's a distinction between the sacred and the profane, but it is to acknowledge that the things that God is shaping history out of are the things that are. So if we are to begin the song exactly where we are, we have to remain within the world of which we're made, not some imaginary universe of our own devising. When we call nothing common in the earth or air, when we accept it all and let it be for good, does not mean that we approve of everything that is. It means that we accept it and deal with reality as it is right now. I think there are two ways we can read that line, accept it all and let it be for good. One is to say, accept it all and let it be for good. Realize that what is now will always be known as what it is. That history has in the various forces that have combined together to bring us to where we are, brought us to where we are and this is where we are and we can't change that reality so we need to accept that for good take it as it is and deal with it as it is another way to do that to read that line is to read it and I think this is more likely to accept it all and let it be for good maintain the attitude That it's possible for things as they are to be used for good. More specifically, that God can redeem any situation, however bad. I'm reminded of the story of Joseph. Joseph, who was a little snot, he really was obnoxious, and his brothers couldn't stand him, so his brothers sold him into slavery. Joseph ends up in Egypt, turns out to be an extremely gifted administrator, and basically he's running a major superpower, going through the process of cornering the grain market so that when there's a famine, everybody has to come to Egypt and buy the grain and have to buy it with the things they own and then has to buy it with their lands and land and then with their very selves, which is how Israel becomes enslaved in Egypt. And eventually when Joseph does the great reveal and he demonstrates to his brothers who had sold him into slavery that not only is he alive, but he is, in fact, he is in fact alive and he is running Egypt and he has shown them and especially their beloved father great mercy. He says, listen, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. What man intended for evil, God intended intended for good that's not to say that Joseph in any way approved of his father being lied to he did not certainly approve of his being sold into slavery or thrown into jail what he said is what man intended for evil God intended for good and God is able to bring good out of anything however evil. If we can affirm that we can accept it all and let it be for good, that does not mean that we're okay with it. What it means is that we have enough trust in God to be confident that He can work even with these materials. If we get ourselves bunched up about the situation we're in, I think that's a sign to us that we need to know more of Christ's peace, more of the Spirit's consolation, more of the Father's might. We need to recognize that God is able to make good of any of this, however horrifying. And so I think at this junction where we find ourselves, there really are, are basically two postures that the church can take. One is to say that for God to set things right, what that will require is that His church choose the right path. Jesus said there is the narrow way and there is the easy way. Choose the narrow way. And so, folks, in this camp would say what the church has to do is the church has to recognize that we have to make the right choice in constructing our ethic of human sexuality and we have to keep at arm's length at best those who have made the wrong choice. And so we have on the progressive side people like Mark Actemeyer who used to be a traditionalist Is a Presbyterian who changed his mind, and he's now said that the church must take a different position and must affirm same-sex marriage. You have Matthew Vines. Matthew Vines, who is a bright young guy from Kansas, grew up in a solid, healthy Christian home, realized he was gay, realized that he had always read these texts in Scripture that seemed to say that that wasn't okay, that there was something wrong with him, and so he dropped out of college and just studied these texts as deeply as he could to understand what's going on. And you might say, okay, great, so you get this you know, guy in his early 20s, basically drops out, spends a bunch of time in a library, and he writes a book. Well, I mean, the school he dropped out of was Harvard, but still. Um, he, he's come to the conclusion that not only that, that gay marriage is something that the church should embrace, but it's something the church has to embrace. David Gushy, a well-known evangelical ethicist, has come to the same conclusion that in order for God's beloved children who are gay to live according to who they are, they have to be able to enter into lifelong same-sex commitments. We should call them marriage, they say, and they have to be endorsed. This is not simply a position that some people could hold. This is the right choice. Others, of course, on the traditional side will say, no, we need to continue holding to the traditional view of human sexuality, that God made us male and female, that he made us to be in complementary union together, and that God gave human as a good gift to be enjoyed within a committed monotonous, monogamous relationship between a man and a woman, or that it is to be something that is abstained from. If you're not in one of those relationships, they would say you have to pick the right path and walk down that one alone. But there are others, and this is the path that we've chosen, who say that we think the way God will put things right on this, the way he will lead his church into truth on this question, is by having us walk together on the same road, changing the metaphor, of course. Recognizing that we are in communion with our brothers and sisters in Christ, who see this issue very, very. This is not without precedent. During the Civil War, most of the Protestant denominations split into northern and southern factions over the issue of slavery. It was thought by those in the North that it was unconscionable for anybody to hold slaves and you could not be in fellowship with those who would condone it, let alone those who actually, as people like clergy people who themselves owned slaves and therefore they had to come out from them and be separate. You also had denominations like Roman Catholics and the Episcopalians which did not divide but which stayed together and chose ultimately to walk together down the road of understanding where God was leading them. And what this looks like as a practical matter is you have people like Justin Lee. Justin is an activist. He's a gay activist. He is Set up the Gay Christian Network, and in his view, is that the church should recognize same sex marriage as a legitimate ethical choice. But he also recognizes there are people who will not see that, and he wants to show them respect and grace as well. He's not so convinced he's right that he has to say everybody who disagrees with him is out of bounds. He's convinced he's right. But he also believes that he should, can and should be in conversation with those who disagree. Ken Wilson is a pastor of a vineyard church. Vineyard is a very conservative Pentecostal denomination. And and he has come to the conclusion that the church should embrace same-sex marriage. But his challenge to his denomination is that it should include those who have different views on on this issue. We also have the example of gay Christians, examples of gay Christians who are living with integrity according to their understanding of what God calls them to, and are doing so very much according to their identity as gay people and as Christians. Eve Tushnet is a Catholic writer, and she's, this book is Gay and Catholic, which is all about how she's gay and Catholic. And she's talked about what it is for her to be a woman who is only attracted to other women and is a faithful part of a church that teaches that that is not something that can be expressed within the bounds of proper sexual ethic. And so she is celibate and she lives out that reality. Similarly among evangelicals is Wes Hill that Mary and I got to know in February when we were on this trip to Israel. He is a New Testament scholar. He has done his homework. He certainly knows well all the arguments for and against reading the passages like the ones we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians in a more permissive way or in a more traditional way. He has not been convinced that the traditional view is wrong. So as much as he as a gay man would like to be able to bound to another man he does not believe that that would be honoring to god and so he also is celibate he has a blog called spiritual friendship he's been trying to develop a theology of friendship which is especially necessary he believes for people like him who have committed to celibacy i look at the the sacrificial lives of people like Tim Otto. Tim is a pastor out in San Francisco. He's a gay man, and he believes that it is entirely appropriate for him as a gay man to be in a committed relationship with him. But he also believes it is not the only thing he should be concerned about. He's a member of a church in San Francisco, which is an intentional community. The church involves a significant commitment, including living together in community. And the church's mission is to serve a particular population of immigrants in San Francisco. This population of immigrants comes from a country with very, very traditional sexual mores. And if Tim were to be living openly in a relationship with another man, even if it were a gay marriage, that would impede his church's ability to be effective in their mission. So he has taken a vow of celibacy, even though he doesn't think he needs to. But because he's part of this kingdom mission, he has placed that under the importance of being faithful to what God has called the community that he's part of to do. And he's somebody who speaks like some of these other authors, with the utmost generosity to the convictions of people who have different perspectives on this. And then there's this new book by Brad and Drew Harper. Brad Harper is a theologian. He teaches at Multnomah, which is a very conservative institution out in Oregon. Drew Harper is Brad Harper's son. Drew is gay, and he's actively living a gay lifestyle. He's rejected the traditional Values that he was raised in. And this is a book that they wrote together talking about what it looks like for two people who love each other and are in relationship with one another but have radically different understandings on this issue which really cashes out in terms of their lives and how they are able to relate to each other. It's not a comfortable book. But it's an honest book. It's a faithful book. And I think we too at New Hope have chosen a path that is not particularly comfortable. New Hope is a congregation that has always taught a traditional ethic of sexuality. We've not been willing to uh, perform a, a gay wedding, for example. But we are also in partnership with the Episcopal Diocese of Maryland, which is a progressive diocese within a progressive church. A place where those who hold traditional views are very much in the minority, and for now at least are being tolerated, but who knows? But we have decided nevertheless, even though there are differences between our communions, we also have an opportunity to work together for the sake of the kingdom. And so we moved our church down to Catonsville, all the way to Catonsville. You have to stop off in Woodlawn usually to get gas and use the restroom. Sometimes I only make it to Liberty Road. But we, we did this because we felt God was calling us to do this. And, and it, likewise, plenty of Episcopalians who have been behind this have had to answer the question, Why are you, what are you doing with those people? Why are you bringing them in? Why did you ordain that guy? That last question is still a valid one. And it has been hard for me. I mean, not just because this is challenging stuff to preach, but because I'm, I'm living, I am, I am personally inhabiting this tension pretty much on a constant basis, wearing two collars, so to speak, both as a senior pastor of New Hope and as the vicar of St. Hilda's Episcopal Church. But I think we're walking the path that God has led us to. And I think for us to do that, we need to maintain the kinds of attitudes we have maintained. We need to be open-minded. Again, some people say open-minded, and I don't know what's wrong with the thing, I'm sorry. Some people, you know, say, when they say open-minded, they just kind of have their minds so open that nothing actually stays there. You know, the, the, whole, the whole point of being open-minded is like, the, the point of opening your mind is like the, the point of opening your mouth. You want to close it down again on something solid, but but, but the habit of being open-minded means that you're always being open, you're always being willing to hear different ideas and to consider the possibility that your own need may need to be revised. It's not to say that you don't maintain commitments, in fact, quite the contrary, you really can't be open-minded if there's nothing in there rattling around already, which is the problem that Bruce has. I love Bruce. We have to be not only open minded, we have to be open hearted. We have to be willing to be vulnerable to one another. We have to be aware of the ways in which we're experiencing things like regret, disappointment, anxiety. We need to be willing to love our brothers and sisters even when that may be difficult. We need to be open handed. We need to be generous, generous not only in our thinking and in our emotions, but we need to be willing to go the extra mile, even down to Catonsville. To be willing to give up things that are valuable to us, that are comfortable for us in order to be faithful to the call that God has. At the end of his poem, Malcolm Geit says, Become an open singing bowl. Become an open singing bowl whose chime is richness rising out of emptiness and timelessness resounding into time. And when the heart Is full of quietness. Begin the song exactly where you are. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, I pray that you would enable us to put aside the regret disappointment the fear the anxiety that keep us from beginning the song exactly where we are that keep us from having our hearts full not of chaos but of quietness the things that prevent us from being able to sing clearly and loudly and beautifully. pray that the fruit of these difficult seven weeks will be the glorifying of your name through the entire church. And all this we ask through the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ.